Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Well, good morning. My name is Jason Myers, and I'm excited and honored to be with you this morning as we dive into a pretty peculiar uh, passage in Ephesians. As you heard it read, you might be thinking the same thing. But first, what I want to do is introduce you to a, a project that I've been working on for the last 20 months. I'm pretty invested in this project. It's a project near and dear to my heart, and it involves coffee. I love coffee. Every morning I wake up and I make what's called a pour over. If you're not a coffee snob, that may not mean anything to you. For Lisa and myself, uh, I can't function without it. It's actually the first thing I do uh, in my day. And about 20 months ago, uh, I started including our son August in the process for some pretty uh, nefarious reasons or some less than honorable reasons. I wanted to train him to become a baby barista. I think that this was a great idea. And so I have a video I want to play as I talk about what we've been doing. So he's been watching me make coffee every day for most of his life. And so what we do is each morning we uh, take out the water, we heat up the kettle, we grind the beans, we put the filter in, as you can see, and we slowly pour the water over the beans and we make our coffee. And he's really taken to it. I think we're doing really well. We are well on our way to the first baby barista. Uh, we will get to grass mowing later in life. I feel like that's a little dangerous at this point. Um, not that hot water isn't. Um, and so most mornings now, August wakes up and says, Daddy, make coffee. And that's the clue that we're going to make this together. And he's excited for the process. Because what? He's seen me do the same repetitive but important actions day after day for most of his life. And now he's emulating what I do. He's imitating me because I'm, I'm his father. Now, this is done in some fun ways like making coffee. But as we all know, right, we are sons and daughters of someone. We imitate our parents too, sometimes in good ways and fun ways, and sometimes in some really, really frustrating ways. In some ways, we don't want to replicate. Maybe it's anger or impatience. Maybe it's snarkiness or laziness. And all of a sudden, we get to a certain age and we realize that those patterns that were practiced before us are now being done by us. And it's really frustrating. Because imitation is a powerful thing. Whatever we see over and over again has the power to shape us, to imitate it, both consciously and unconsciously. We become what we imitate. And you may be thinking, well, what does that have to do with the passage that was read in Ephesians this morning? Well, right before the section we read in our epistle reading, Paul says this in Ephesians 5.1. Therefore, be imitators of God. Ephesians 5, and including our epistle reading, is Paul's explanation of how we become imitators of God, our Father. But if we're going to imitate God, what does this mean? How do we conform ourselves to who God is? Paul isn't inventing imitating God out of thin air. He's drawing on a really ancient Jewish concept. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me uh, to Genesis chapter 1. 
way back in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1, God says this. He says, let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness. See, as Christians, we talk about this concept of being created in the image of God. God wants to make humanity in his image, and what does he mean by that? The Hebrew word here, we're going to learn a little bit of Hebrew, is the word zelem. What's fascinating about this is that word can be translated both image and idol, depending on the context. And so the term means representation. It represents something else. And so we might even say imitation or, or conformity. It imitates. It conforms to the image of something. And of course, idols in the ancient world were representations of various gods uh, made out of stone or wood meant to picture, right, what that god was like. So what is God talking about here in Genesis 1? Well, in, in short, that humanity as a whole, both in our unity and our diversity picture, we conform to what God is. And as we live that out, we are imitating or representing God to the world. And that seems a little open-ended, doesn't it? This is not, if you remember the books, Bearing God's Image, a choose-your-own-adventure story. This isn't like a, how do I want to go about this? I think I'm going to flip to the end and find out what happens. Um, God gets specific in how he wants this lived out. It's this big thing called the Ten Commandments, pretty famous. And they provide guidance for how Israel is going to image or imitate God says, these 10 commandments and all the other ones in the law are how you're going to best picture me to the world around you. And this is why the commandments become so, so important in the Old Testament. Because behind the commandments, like truth-telling, not stealing, keeping Sabbath, is the idea that this is how God wants to be pictured to the world. And as Israel conforms, imitates its life to the image of God, they represent God to the world. And this was really confusing in the ancient world because, again, Israel had no idols, had no images, pictorial representations, because they were the image. So when someone saw their community, they said, uh, ah, so, so this is what your God is like. I can see your God in you. And conformity to God's image was both geared towards human flourishing, how do humans create uh, a good life, and also missional, and that the world around them saw this as an invitation to the way to be truly human, to truly live. And so as humans, we will imitate or conform our lives to someone or something. That's how we're wired. Just like August making coffee, we will picture, we will imitate what we see. For all our talk about being unique, we are copying somebody. We are unique in some ways, but... There are other uh, images out there. We have all found people to image ourselves after, and God wants us to imitate the best, namely himself. And this is the high calling of the people of God. It's a tremendous responsibility that we in our life together are sometimes the only picture of, what God, of, of God that people will see. So when we come back to Paul in Ephesians, and he tells us it become imitators of God, he doesn't have an ambiguous idea on how we're to do that. I don't think Paul is saying, just go out there and give it your best shot and see what happens. And we'll pick it up on the back end. 
Rather, Paul mentions how he wants the Ephesians to imitate God. And we see this right in the verses before and after Paul says, be imitators. I have them up on the screen because you can kind of miss it sometimes. Um, I put them side by side. He says this in Ephesians uh, 4.31. He says, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And then one verse after that in Ephesians 5.2, he says, live in love just as Christ has loved us. Do you see how Paul defines imitating God? Forgiveness and love. That is how the Ephesians are to do this. God forgave you and loved you. Now forgive and love others. This is a positive way that Paul starts off on how you should image God together as a community. And that's the positive aspect. Go and do these things. And then that brings us to the passage we're in today, which is the ways to not do that. And if you've ever seen a list like Paul has here, I have it up on the screen. These are some of the lists that Christians are often known for, for things that they don't do, right? Um, Pull most people, these are the things that say, yeah, that's the the group that has that market kind of cornered on that. Um, And so when we start here, these owners to make sure is the ways that Paul's saying that we shouldn't bear out God's image. And these lists are a little famous because again, As a church, there's been a lot of concentration on the what of this list, but I think we've paid far less attention to the why. So we all know kind of the hit list. This isn't the only one. And so this morning, what I want to do is unpack that why. I want to begin with that list on the screen. Why do these things in this place here in Ephesians become the ways of things that we are to avoid as we bear out God's image? Uh, First question for us, as we think about imitating God, does our list of things to avoid look like Paul's list of things to avoid? Now, again, some of them might be um, ones that we've selected or ones that are easier to do. Some of them, like vulgar talk or sexual immorality, might be obvious choices on things that should be on that list. But some may surprise us. Paul puts greed right in the center. Of that list. When was the last time we heard a sermon or read a book about the danger of greed? That's right there in the middle of Paul's list amongst those other famous topics. Well, we're going to answer the first one this morning. So this is a sermon a little bit on greed. Simple question. What does greed look like and how would we know it if we saw it? What is greed? I think it's one of those terms that are hard to define. Uh, the word that Paul uses for greed here is fascinating because it's the word translated to covet. To be greedy is to covet something. And that word for some should ring a bell, should echo something, because it's the final command of the Ten Commandments. The final one is do not covet, back in Exodus and Deuteronomy. You remember that whole piece about how we image God? I think Paul is still thinking about that list and how we ought to bear out God's image. And what's rather interesting is that we think about the commandment to covet in light of the other nine. Many think that the 10th commandment to be covetous or to be greedy is actually what gives rise to the violation of all the other commandments. So as we violate the 10 commandments, the source of that is coveting. Think about it. We covet something 
so then we lie about it so that we can have it. We desire something, so we steal it. People get in the way of what we want, so there's murder. We need something, so we violate the Sabbath. It's that covetous, greedy nature that gives rise to a violation of all the other commandments and ultimately sets up another God to worship and violates commandments one through three. Paul says something pretty bold about greed. He says greed is idolatry, or the, the greedy person is an idolater. Remember that Hebrew word for idol is also the word for image. Paul's point seems to be that being greedy is not how God wants to be imaged. This puts out a very poor picture of who God is, and it refashions and destroys the image of God in us and others. Greed is idolatrous because it causes us to place our faith and trust ultimately in ourselves. How hard we can work, how many resources we can acquire. A life of greed leaves no room or need for God because I'm going to take care of this. I will get the things that I need. And hence the claim of idolatry in one of Jesus' most startling phrases. We cannot serve God and mammon. We cannot serve God and money. Most likely Paul is echoing Jesus here in Ephesians, and both Paul and Jesus think this greed topic is a big deal, and I think we should too. But maybe you're thinking, I'm not greedy. Like, I would never characterize myself as a greedy person. I'll just say this. We live in the wealthiest nation on earth. And it would be naive, if not downright honest, to say that greed isn't somewhere around the corner. Let me give you an example. Uh, I've had a few friends who worked at the great cake shop, Maxi B's, over the years. And one of the first questions they always get when they start a new job is like, how do you avoid eating all that cake every day? Because it's everywhere. Every, it's all lined up, right? Beautiful. They all go on to mention that there has to be, one, a massive amount of awareness of the temptation and a lot of self-control because there are sweets everywhere. And the temptation just to eat cake every time is just bound to be higher based on what they're surrounded by. And so it'd be really foolish to get a job at Maxi B's and say, you know what? I don't think I'm going to have a problem with cake. It's like, you are. You just don't know it yet. Um, let's go into this with a little bit of wisdom. I think greed works that way here in America. It's like walking into work at Maxi B's. The temptation is everywhere. It's in the air we breathe. In a million ways, we are marketed the message that you don't have enough. And you just need that small bit more. We are conditioned to covet. We are conditioned to be greedy. And so our view on greed is bound to be a little warped because it's going to be really hard to see it. So again, we go, I'm not greedy. Well, how would we know if we were? Where would that come from? Have you ever noticed that greedy, that greedy or that, that term is one of those terms that people rarely self-identify as? Critical self-reflection here. It's a huge value. How would we know if we were greedy? Would an awareness of our own greed rise up from within us? So as one morning, we're just sitting there waking up as we're drinking our coffee. We look to our family and go, you know what? I think I'm just a greedy person. Uh, possibly, I want to give you a maybe on that one. 
But I would argue that both the scriptures and the great tradition have thought long and hard about this. And they've come to the conclusion that, su that such self-awareness is highly unlikely. Highly, highly, highly unlikely. Uh, in fact, Jeremiah puts it this way. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The great churchman Thomas Cranmer, who produced the Book of Common Prayer, had his views on humans summarized by Ashley Knoll this way. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. I'm not a greedy person. I know I'm not. Scripture in the Great Tradition says, let's take a time out on that and say, we might not be the best judges of our own faults. It doesn't just happen automatically. Sin rarely looks like sin for the people most invested in it. We've got a lot to lose. So if we want to know if we're greedy, it's probably best to have our lives examined. How do we examine ourselves? Well, one way is we can open ourselves up to confession. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Another one can be generosity. Generosity is a good barometer of our greediness. If greed is focused on ourselves and our families and, and people like us, then generosity is others-focused. And there's an inverse relationship to the two. They don't work towards the same end, right? So another way to put this is how generous am I? Now, you may be thinking, uh, this is a lot of talk about money or economics, and luckily, I'm a, I'm a high school student, I'm a college student, a grad student. I'm, this is great. I don't have a lot of money. I can't be greedy. Boom. Problem solved. So the sermon is for someone else. Maybe not so fast. First, greed doesn't come with a certain tax bracket. There isn't like a level you hit and like greed kicks in, right? Second, it isn't just financial. And it's baked into Paul's list. You might not see it at first. It's a, there's another root cause of another item in Paul's list that comes from greed. And it's one that we probably have not thought about in this way. I have it on the screen. Sexual immorality. One of those terms, those buzzwords, right? Like, oh, that's like a Christianese term. I think you can translate it this way. Sexual immorality is greedy sexuality. What do you mean by that? Again, I think this is one of those terms that Christians are known for the what that we're not supposed to do, but again, we've missed the why. You may be thinking, how does sexual immorality and greed connect with one another? Well, the Greek term here is the word porneia, a term I'm sure we've all heard before. Greedy sexuality seeks to consume and make oneself the prime actor and not to love. Because remember, Paul says that love looks out for the interests of others. Love is others-focused. Porneia, immorality, sexual immorality, is what do I want and what do I need without regard for the cost to the other person? Now, in Paul's day, this would have been a radically humanizing command. We live about 2,000 years after that, and we go, oh, that's one of those things that Paul's just being a, a cosmic killjoy, right? No, no, this is a deeply humanizing motive. Take a look at the horrific aftermath we are living through in terms of sex abuse scandals and sexual assault. Greedy sexuality causes damage, lots of damage, lots of hurt. 
And Paul says, when he says, don't practice pornea or sexual immorality or greedy sexuality, he says, because humans get deeply hurt in the process. It's not all fair in love and war. God is deeply concerned with the well-being of humans and those most vulnerable. So he says, don't be sexually immoral. Don't practice that. So greed goes far beyond money. It's connected to other items on this list. So if we can be greedy in terms of money, people, and even time, how do we resist that temptation? If Paul says don't do these things, how do we avoid them? Paul gives us, I think, two ways to respond. And the first one is thanksgiving. In verse 4, he says, let there be thanksgiving. I think Paul sees thanksgiving as an antidote to greed. Greed says, I need more. Thanksgiving says, I have enough. I'm thankful. My partner is enough. God is enough. The home I have is enough. I don't need anything more. Thanksgiving says, God is the giver of every good gift that I have in my life. And I can worship him, and I am thankful for that. And I don't need anything else. I have enough. Paul says, when we practice a life of thanksgiving rather than greed, the image of God shines through us. Because it's out of that thanksgiving, when saying I have enough to meet my needs, we can become a giving people. And that's who God is. God is the great giver. There's a big connection here between God and thanksgiving, and that's because the word thanksgiving here is the word Eucharist, to mean thanksgiving or celebration. In Thanksgiving, the Eucharist celebrates a God who gives us not only his son, as we celebrate in our service, but our world and everything in our lives, as Ben mentioned last week. Thanksgiving is a reminder that there is a God who cares and who meets our needs, so we don't need to be greedy. He will provide what we need. Uh, I think Paul has another antidote, and it's a little um, more interesting. So the first one is Thanksgiving. The second one is exposure. Verse 511. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but indeed expose them. That exposure word is just, ugh, it's so exposing. There's another way to talk about it, right? It's like one of those words, yeah, I don't, I don't like that word. Uh, it doesn't make me feel good. Um, Paul's referring what, to what things he's referring to expose that list above, right? Why would Paul say expose these things? Again, I don't think Paul's just a super judgmental dude who likes to yell at people, right? And be like, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. For Paul, these habits lead to dehumanization, the death and the hurt of others and ourselves, as we've seen. And the only way to properly image God is to have our actions exposed and analyzed to see whether or not they reflect God's image. Again, it's not a choose your own adventure. It's not like, let's see how this goes. It gets pretty specific. So exposure is a necessary part of the process. But we don't like exposure. Some of you may know this about me. Uh, I hate surprises. They are the worst thing ever. My worst fear is a surprise birthday party. It actually happened to me when I turned 15, turned 16, 15 turning 16, so I know of which I speak. And it was one of the worst experiences of my life. To this day, it's up there. And you're like, man, that's not really that bad of an experience. Um, I am such a planner that anything surprising actually causes me anxiety. It's just not fun. Um, I can still remember walking into our church fellowship hall and realizing that everyone knew something that I didn't. 
even a good thing, like a birthday, and feeling so exposed, so caught off guard, so under the spotlight, I just, uh, I coil at that feeling. So don't ever do that to me. 40 is coming up. You've been warned. Please don't. Uh, you see, as I reflect on it now, I love to know a situation before I go in. Um, maybe you do too. And so that sense of like being caught off guard, being exposed is just, it's awful. Now, if some of us, namely me, can feel that way with a surprise party, how much more so with things that we're embarrassed or ashamed of? Like that list earlier on the screen. It's why we hide so often, because we tie exposure to rejection. If someone knew this, then they would distance themselves from it. They would reject it. So it's important when we come to verse 11 and Paul says, expose the deeds of darkness, that we read it in the whole context of what Paul has been saying in Ephesians 5. Don't forget where Paul started. Paul began Ephesians 5 by reminding us of God's forgiveness and love. Paul isn't telling us a story of rejection. He's telling us a story of reconciliation. And Paul isn't wanting to create a hyper-judgmental community. Far from it. Paul wants a community that imitates God's love and forgiveness. For all of us who do wrong in aims of restoration and redemption. But then, like now, we avoid exposure. And this is the process of being conformed into God's image. Uh, we live in a time where the church itself is being exposed. From racism to sexual abuse and assault, even within our own denomination. And there are two reactions when these things happen, both of which I think are wrong. Two main ways people respond to exposure of, of bad things. The first response I have on the screen is, is denial and cover up. We can deny that anything wrong even took place. We have to deny that racism exists even while we stare it directly at it and see its evil effects. There's a rush to a sanitized version of history to make it more palatable. In denial, in abuse cases, sadly, often there's a rush to cover and make sure things don't see the light of day. Deny, cover up, this is the opposite of Paul's response. He says, expose it, bring it out, take it all out. Why? Because Christians are called to what is good, right, and true, Ephesians 5, 9. And so there has to be a critical eye towards things which are evil, wrong, and false. We have sadly lost our bearings on much of this. But don't miss the exposure has a goal. Because it's in those places that we get the opportunity to imitate God through forgiveness and love. God will meet you there, and God wants you to meet others there, too. Exposure opens the door to let the transformative light of God shine in. Wake up, O sleeper, as Paul says. But we've preferred darkness, even though it isn't good for us. So if the first response is denial and cover-up, the second response isn't much better when things are exposed, right? The second response I see mainly these days uh, is equally not as good. That's exposure and rejection. There's no redemption in this history. There's just judgment, usually followed by a feeling of superiority. I'm glad I'm not that person. I would never do that. 
I am much better, morally speaking, than that other group. I think both responses, denial and cover-up, exposure and rejection, are far less than God's ideal. And we can fall into either temptation. The story of God and the gospel that Paul is telling says more than the stories of our world. The gospel story is more powerful than denial, and it's more powerful than rejection. The gospel story that, that Jesus is telling says we can do something better here. We can practice forgiveness and love. You see, you can't have forgiveness with denial because nothing bad happens. So what forgiveness do we need? And you can't have love with rejection. It's hard to love someone at a distance. And you certainly don't get redemption without either. The good news of the gospel is that Christians can look at the most heinous evil and not excuse it or deny it. As humans, we are capable of unspeakable evil. That list is not just a, a list of terms. There's, there's evil there. And it's in each of us. And God, in a way that only God can do, has taken up the challenge of evil and dealt with it himself. God hasn't rejected us. He's made a way for us. And the great news of the gospel is that God defeated evil and death through his son because of his love for the world and now offers forgiveness and reconciliation. And as his image bears, we're supposed to practice that story too. The images of God are being called back to him. Will we take up the invitation? As we conclude, each week in our service, we have a time of confession. It's an attempt to tell the truth about ourselves, because we are very bad judges. Confession, if you've been around here, it's a pretty peculiar practice. And you may have wondered why we do it. Why do we take time to say, let's lay out all the areas I've done wrong? That doesn't seem like a fun thing to do. Well, we believe that unless sin is identified in our lives, it will never be transformed. So we expose it to God, to ourselves, and to others. It's how a community of Jesus followers become better imitators of God by conforming our lives to who he is. We examine ourselves and ask hard questions that expose our actions and attitudes to see what lines up with what God has asked of us and what does not. We have worshiped idols. We, as we say, as we say in the confession, we have not loved God with our whole heart. We have practiced idolatry. We confess that we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have done wrong. We've been greedy in more ways than one. And so today, as we move in, later on in our service to our time of examination, our time of confession, may the light of God shine in to reveal to us where our idols have been growing. And may we hear the words of Paul, rise up, wake up, O sleeper. We confess because we are invited to the table where we taste and see the forgiveness and love of God that is redeeming us and our entire world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.